From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, China says economic and trade ties are the cornerstone of China-U.S. relations. A U.S. judge has set a trial date for Donald Trump on charges of seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And Florida's bracing for the first hurricane expected to make landfall in the state this season. In business, China's making plans to boost consumer confidence in the economy. In sports, a Chinese player earns a hard-fought victory in the first round of the U.S. Open. In culture and entertainment, China China's new awards honoring the best in TV, film, animation, and documentaries. Now the day's top stories. China's Commerce Minister says economic and trade ties are the cornerstone of China-U.S. relations. During a meeting with U.S. Secretary of Commerce Jeanette Raimondo in Beijing, Wang Wentao said China is willing to uphold principles of mutual respect and win-win cooperation. He also raised concerns over U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, as well as sanctions on Chinese enterprises and discriminatory subsidies. The two sides have set up a working group to resolve business frictions and uh, initiated uh, a plan to exchange more information on export controls. Joe Jashin has more about the meeting. China says it is willing to work with the United States to promote bilateral trade investment. Uh, the two sides announced establishment of new communication channels to seek solutions to address specific business issues. It said that they have initiated an export control information exchange mechanism, which serves as a mechanism for explaining their respective export control systems and improving communication. Let's hear what the two sides have to say during the talks. 
We are ready to work with Washington to foster a more favorable policy environment for cooperation between the two countries' businesses, to bolster bilateral trade and investment in a stable manner, and to inject stronger impetus into the world economic recovery. The vast majority of our trade and investment relationship does not involve national security concerns, and in this regard, I'm committed. Uh, to promoting trade and investment in those areas that are in our mutual best interest. But there are a slew of serious concerns Chinese side has raised over what it called unilateral and protectionist measures by the U.S. side, including uh, the U.S. Section 301 tariffs on Chinese goods, its semiconductor policies, uh, restrictions of two-way investment, and discriminatory subsidies and sanctions on Chinese enterprises. One also dismissed the U.S. generalization of the concept of national security as inducive to normal economic and trade exchanges, market rules, and fair competition, adding it will only harm the security and stability of the global industrial and supply chains. That was Joe Jiaxin reporting on the meeting between uh, commerce chiefs from China and the U.S. as they seek to ease tensions between the two countries. The president of the American Chamber of Commerce in China says the Chinese market remains crucial to U.S. business. Uh, Michael Hart says success in bilateral trade depends on good China-U.S. relations. So I think it's natural for companies and countries to make sure they have a diverse uh, and well-balanced supply chain. So over the decades, China has built itself up as a major manufacturing uh, and sourcing location. China will continue to be an important part of U.S. companies and European company supply chains for decades to come. We do believe China will continue to be an important place for U.S. companies to invest. So there are plenty of areas where China is uh, a leading sector. So, for example, electronic vehicles. Um, China's consumer market is very attractive. Uh, aviation sector is very attractive. So a number of uh, our member companies are very interested to continue to engage with China to see what China can do from a consumer point of view. But also China will continue to be important in terms of manufacturing and supply chain. So a whole host of our companies are very um, interested in continuing to doing to business here. That was the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in China on why the Chinese and U.S. business communities uh, can't decouple from each other. Well, China and the U.S. have acknowledged the need to work together despite disputes. Uh, trade relations between the two countries have gone through ups and downs since the two countries established diplomatic ties. Owen Faircloth looks back on how things started and how the two countries have managed to keep them going. Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping with President Jimmy Carter at the White House in 1979, celebrating what would become the oldest standing scientific pact between two countries who'd only just established diplomatic relations. The normalization of relations between the United States and China has no other purpose than this, the advancement of peace. An example of cooperation that suffered after years of trade battles brought diplomatic relations to an all-time low. But cooperation nevertheless continues. Amid a flurry of bilateral ministerial meetings over the summer aimed at rebuilding relations, President Joe Biden is seeking a six-month extension of that scientific pact to stop it expiring. And U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is now the latest member of Biden's team to visit China. Ahead of Gina Raimondo's visit, the Commerce Department lifted export controls on 27 Chinese entities that couldn't receive U.S. technology, a gesture that was well-received by her counterparts in Beijing. China and the U.S. are also working together to meet stringent targets aimed at cutting harmful emissions. 
but tensions over the central pillar of their relationship remain. Washington effectively barring most U.S. companies from exporting the most advanced technology to China, claiming Beijing will weaponize it to target the U.S. Beijing has made formal complaints to Washington, insisting the U.S. is using national security as an excuse to stifle competition. That was Owen Faircloth reporting. Well, supermarkets and restaurants in China are pulling Japanese seafood off their shelves after Japan began to release nuclear-contaminated water into the uh, ocean. Uh, China's banned imports of all aquatic products from Japan. There are about 79,000 Japanese restaurants on the Chinese mainland, and many have stopped serving seafood from Japan. Tang Shuifan has uh, gone to a few markets and restaurants in Shanghai to find out more. Jiangyang Aquatic Wholesale Market in Baoshan District supplies nearly 70% of Japanese restaurants in the city. Aquatic products imported from Japan account for nearly 3% of total seafood imports. Many Japanese seafood products, including sea urchin and tuna, have been taken off shelves. We seldom sell seafood from Japan. Those spot shrimp are imported from Russia and Canada. The scallops are from domestic seafood suppliers, which can replace Japanese ones. Industry insiders say seafood supermarkets import most products like salmon and tuna from Norway and Chile. Many of them had stopped importing seafood from Japan two months ago. Many Japanese restaurants also said they had already stopped purchasing seafood from Japan and shifted to procuring from other countries like New Zealand and Spain. We have always imported salmon from Norway instead of Japan. We are also importing aquatic products from Spain after Japan started to discharge nuclear-contaminated water. Nutrition and food hygiene professor Li Shuguang said the aquatic products have gone through strict checks on radioactive indicators before reaching the market. That was Tang Shuifen reporting. Coming up, judges set a trial date for former President Donald Trump. Last week, Japan began releasing nuclear-contaminated water from the tsunami-crippled Fukushima power plant. Opposition voices are overridden by over one million tons of the water stored on shore for over a decade. This week, Deep Dive hopes to unravel the controversies Has the UN nuclear watchdog's report been distorted to appear as an endorsement? Why is the Japanese government ignoring protests from neighboring countries? Available on all major podcast platforms, just search for Deep Dive. We're at nine minutes past the hour. A U.S. judge is set March the 4th as the trial date of former President Donald Trump on charges of seeking to overturn results of the 2020 presidential election. That's one day before Super Tuesday, when over a dozen U.S. states will decide whether to give him a chance to run as president. Kate Fisher reports. It's not the result that Donald Trump had been hoping for. His lawyers had argued that the trial should be delayed until 2026, 
But District Judge Tanya Chutkan refused, saying that Mr. Trump will have to juggle his legal defense with his efforts to win the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. With a former president running for re-election next year while facing four criminal prosecutions, the legal timetable has taken on an outsized importance. One of those cases is in Georgia, where Mr. Trump is charged with trying to overturn the results of the presidential election in that state. On the same day as the hearing in Washington, one of Trump's co-defendants in that case, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, is asking a federal judge in Georgia to take over his case and then to dismiss charges against him. But the hearing will also be the first time that substantive arguments will be made in court. It's a precursor to the official arraignments of Mr. Trump and his 18 alleged co-conspirators, including his former lawyer Rudy Giuliani, next week. Now is Kate Fisher in Washington on the trial of former U.S. president and Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. A shooting at the University of North Carolina has left a faculty member dead. Police say they have arrested a suspect after shots were reported at the Chapel Hill campus. Many students say they were shocked and confused by the incident. It took us a while to realize how serious it was. And you could feel in the room, like, the more and more we realized how real it was. Like, we went from sitting there on our social media to barricading doors. It was unexpected. When the chancellor commented on students being informed of a supposed protocol, there may be one that exists, but students have by no means been informed of it, let alone been able to practice it in a drill or really are aware of it at all. University Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz has expressed his condolences to the victim. I'm grieved to report that one of our faculty members um, was killed in this shooting. This loss is devastating and uh, the shooting damages the trust and safety that we so often take for granted uh, in our campus community. Chief of Police Brian James says they're not releasing the name of the suspect as authorities have not yet filed formal charges. We are committed to conducting a thorough investigation and we will provide as many updates throughout the process as we can. The FBI is providing assistance with multiple resources, including victim assistance, and the evidence response team. He adds that it's still early, uh, to, too early to figure out a motive for the shooting. The family of Martin Luther King Jr. called for action and change as they visited the White House on the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. The family had a meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden. Among them is Martin Luther King III, the eldest son of the civil rights activist. He said they are at a very challenging time. This is a very difficult day for us in one sense because you would think that America would be much further than it is. What we know though is that mom and dad and others taught us that when people come together change can occur. His sister Bernice said she remains hopeful even though there's darkness. One of the things that my my father said quite often is one of the tragedies still of human history is that the children of darkness are often more zealous and determined than the children of light. But I am hopeful because amongst this group and so many others, including those of the next generation, there's a force of vigilance that is determined to ensure that we create a just, humane, equitable, and peaceful world. 
Well, she added that they're not uh, going to tolerate hate, violence, and poverty. The monumental March on Washington in 1963 drew tens of thousands to the U.S. Capitol to advocate for civil rights, justice, and freedom. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial during that event. Students in many countries are returning to school for the fall semester. Artificial intelligence is having an influence on academia and education. While concerns arise, some faculty members believe there are also benefits. Edith Tian Shan in Los Angeles spoke with some of them to learn how they ensure academic integrity amid rapid AI growth. Unprecedented access to information coupled with the release of highly powerful artificial intelligence software that can compose a script of any kind and style. Some educators worry that plagiarism may be on the rise. We're just in this disruptive phase right now where very powerful new tools have been unleashed and made available to the public. So there is going to continue to be surprise when we see all the creative ways it can be used and you know all the potentially concerning ways it can be used. But I think the better understanding we have of it, uh, the greater the prospect that we can use it as a force for good. For that, there has to be mechanisms in place for both monitoring and raising awareness given the definition of plagiarism may be evolving along with the use of AI technology. We have to warn them about um, dangers of plagiarism, uh, of copyright infringements, uh, and we, we need to check on those to make sure that we're really seeing student work and that, that they're using these tools to enhance what they do, not to as a shortcut for, for the real work that they've got to do. That's why California State University, the nation's largest public university system, passed a resolution in March calling for a working group on artificial intelligence in higher education. The working group would examine the impact of AI on academic integrity, as well as the opportunities it could provide for professional development of faculty. If you just you know, ask an AI to create an essay to express a fairly complicated idea, you can see right now that these, the, the outputs are not going to really express a, uh, a true understanding. Uh, and you know, if I'm, if I'm uh, evaluating that properly, then I should be able to recognize that. The use of AI may have totally different implications in different fields and subjects, but faculty leaders at the University of Southern California believe they need to be better better prepared for this new technology. We will have to prepare our faculty and students to understand um, uh, the potential violations that could occur. But my hope is that as artificial intelligence uh, advances, that the safeguards will also advance as well. So that we'll be better at making sure that the harms that could be inflicted are uh, controlled. In the early days of artificial intelligence, its scope and implications were unclear to many. But California, the birthplace of many AI softwares, is now leading the process of establishing rules around its use to make sure it benefits higher education. That was Edith Tianshan with a report on AI in education. A group of young college students has participated in a volunteer training program for the upcoming Asian Games to ensure they're equipped with the necessary skills and knowledge for that event. Zheng Tao has more. The young volunteers hail from various backgrounds, with some having prior experience in sports or volunteering. Their roles include assisting with logistics, providing information to visitors, helping with athlete services, and supporting the organizing committee. Chen Shuwan is a senior student majoring in bilingual broadcasting from the Communication University of Zhejiang. The volunteer says training sessions include role-playing scenarios, 
that allow the volunteers to practice their skills. After taking part in the training, I now have a good understanding of the event, such as the operation rules of venues. The training sessions also taught me about broadcasting procedures. I was quite nervous at first because the games are an international event. I feel much better now after experiencing the environment. Chen says she has gained a strong sense of sportsmanship after volunteering for a test game. People with disabilities also took part in the games. Their sportsmanship was really impressive, especially at the track cycling venue. They had to give their all to reach top speeds, which increased the risk of collisions. You may witness a group of four or five people crashing together. They still managed to overcome their physical challenges and move on. Their fearless sportsmanship is truly inspiring. Another volunteer, Yue Yue, is an actor for the event. She has been training for several weeks. She says she is excited for being part of the big event. The actors, director, and other crew members made a lot of efforts during rehearsals. But when I realized that I'm a part of the Hangzhou Asian Games and an actor for the event, I just feel honored. I've made a contribution and I'm an essential part of the event. I hope the program I'm involved in can truly astonish everyone. It should be incredibly captivating, that's for sure. This year's Asian Games is set to take place in Hangzhou in less than a month. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Town. Coming up, Florida's bracing for a hurricane on the Gulf Coast. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We'll see you there. At 20 minutes past the hour, Florida's Gulf Coast is under hurricane warning as an approaching tropical storm is forecast to strengthen. Hurricane Adalia has already hit southeastern Mexico and western Cuba. U.S. authorities have issued warnings that large parts of the west coast of Florida are at risk of storm surge and floods. Nitsa Soledad Perez has more from Miami. Tropical storm Adalia is expected to rapidly intensify into a major hurricane with sustained winds of 178 kilometers per hour before reaching Florida's west coast, according to the National Hurricane Center. 46 counties in Florida are under state of emergency. Pretty much anybody on the west coast of Florida, I mean, you can see major, major impacts, and so please prepare accordingly. Life-threatening storm surge warnings are in effect for all Tampa Bay and the Big Bend region of Florida. Storm surge can be life-threatening at just two to three feet. Some of these areas are going to experience storm surge well over seven foot. There's not a person in this room that's over seven foot tall. Mandatory evacuation orders were issued on Monday in several counties ahead of Italy's expected landfall on Wednesday. President Biden ordered federal assistance to supplement state and local efforts related to the weather emergency. Many schools across the state are closing, and Florida's governor has already activated the National Guard. 
But once again, authorities urge those people that live on the Gulf Coast to get ready and be prepared to avoid a repeat of last year's casualties caused by Hurricane Ian's storm surge. That was Nitsa Soledad Perez on Florida preparing for a major hurricane. Nearly 2,000 people in the Philippines have left their homes due to severe flooding that was unleashed by Typhoon Saula. That's the seventh storm to hit the country this year. Saula has since weakened to a tropical storm and is moving towards China. Guangdong province has now launched an emergency response. And in Fujian, authorities have ordered evacuations and suspended ferry services. Children are among the most vulnerable when it comes to the impacts of climate change. A United Nations body is calling on global governments to better protect them. Alex Cadier has more. Children are entitled to demand their governments protect them from climate change and other environmental risks. That is the conclusion of the United Nations Committee charged with monitoring the implementation of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The panel of 18 experts has said in order to respect, protect and fulfill children's rights, states are required to ensure a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. The UN body also highlighted the fact that children are at risk from poor air and water quality, a lack of food safety and exposure to toxic pollutants like lead, adding that this is particularly true for children with disabilities and those belonging to minority or indigenous groups. In the long term, children are also at risk from greenhouse gas emissions, the unsustainable use of resources and the degradation of ecosystems around the world, and climate change as a whole. Beyond the powerful symbolism putting kids front and center, this will be seen as many as a landmark moment for the environmental rights of children facing an uncertain future. Rights that the UN says are enshrined in international law. And that was Alex Cadier on measures to protect children from extreme climate. There's growing concern in Maui about secondary disasters after historic wildfires scorched the Hawaiian island. Electronics, vehicles and other items are releasing toxic chemicals into the air after they were consumed by the flames. It may have long-term health effects on the population. Alistair Baverstock went to Lahaina to see how things are going. While scores of people were killed directly in the Lahaina tragedy two weeks ago, the deadliest U.S. wildfire in over a century may still claim more casualties. Local resident Kylie Adolfo is helping in recovery efforts in the scorched area, but takes care to use protective gear while doing so. Being down in the red zone, it, um, it just has a burning feeling in the chest, burning feeling here in my, my throat. And uh, I definitely need to use a respirator. Um, it, it protects you from dust, fine particles, but not the toxic air. And I, I've been here uh, two weeks now. Lahaina's downtown is now off limits to everyone except search teams and residents. Here in the Lahaina red zone, where my feet sink into the ashes left following this wildfire, the air is difficult to breathe. Indeed, the toxicity of this area is now going to present problems for Hawaii for years to come. Tamara Paltin is a Maui County Council member and says the health impacts are already being seen. I fully believe that it's toxic, you know, the arsenic, the asbestos, the lead, close to the burn zone. We've heard from volunteers having adverse effects. One lady um, I had heard was coughing up blood after being there a number of days. However, the danger hasn't stopped Hawaiians from putting health risks aside to help. 
As the fire was raging, Kekoa Lansford did not flee, but instead returned to the zone multiple times to pull others to safety. He's struggled since. I didn't recognize it at the time because of the adrenaline, I think, but my heart was racing and I couldn't, couldn't really catch my breath. I couldn't breathe very good. And I, for the few days afterwards, I just kept coughing up a bunch of like black stuff and nasty stuff. Come back and count 20 years later, 10 years later, and you'll see how many Native people are sick. Despite the trauma his body went through, Kakoa says he'd do it again in an instant. Such, he says, is the true meaning of aloha. Aloha, it's a deep-rooted concept in the Native Hawaiian culture. It means love. You really love something. You help it thrive. You know, you help it live. You help it be happy. I did what I had to do. I didn't want to. I had to, you know. There was no choice. One of the most traumatic events in Hawaii's history, likely to stretch on for years, as officials work to manage the monumental task of rebuilding amid a toxic debris field. That was Alistair Baverstock uh, in Lahaina on the island of Maui. A London scheme to cut traffic emissions by imposing a daily charge on the most polluting vehicles has expanded to the whole of the UK capital. The ultra-low emission zone was introduced in 2019 in a small part of central London and was further expanded in 2021. It'll now extend to cover area uh, areas home to an extra 5 million people, often with fewer public transport links. Mayor Sadiq Khan has championed the scheme as essential to reduce deaths from illnesses linked to air pollution and to fight climate change. But opponents say the 16 U.S. dollar daily charge on the thousands who drive old and polluting vehicles is unfair during a cost-of-living crisis and will cause economic damage. Researchers have warned that over half of the ski resorts in Europe will face a severe snow shortage if global temperatures continue to rise. They've analyzed the impacts of global warming on over 2,200 ski resorts across 28 European countries. The research found 53% of them will face very high risk of insufficient snow if global temperatures rise 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We're at 28 minutes past the hour now. Uh, Beijing's at 18 degrees overnight. It's cloudy and 29 tomorrow. Chongqing's 23 this evening, then sunny and 32. Last is down to 13, then cloudy and 24. Hong Kong's 27 overnight, sunny and 33 tomorrow. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 25 this evening. It's overcast and 33 Wednesday. Islamabad will be uh, clear and 22 overnight. It's sunny and 36 tomorrow. Bangkok's down to 27 degrees, then moderate rainfall and 34 on Wednesday. In Africa, Nairobi's getting slight rainfall and 24 degrees Celsius. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 13 this evening, and then a slight rain and 24 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, China says economic and trade ties are the cornerstones of China-U.S. relations. A U.S. judge has set a trial date for Donald Trump on charges of seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And Florida's bracing for the first hurricane expected to make landfall in the state this season. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. 60 minutes of comprehensive news. Your window on China and the world. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Tuesday, still to come. In business, China's making plans to boost consumer confidence and the economy. 
In sports, a Chinese player earns a hard-fought victory in the first round at the U.S. Open. In culture and entertainment, China's new awards honoring the best in TV, film, animation, and documentaries. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. But first of all, checking the day's headlines, here's Tian Yu. Thank you, Shane. Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao has expressed the country's readiness to work with the United States to create a favorable policy environment for business cooperation. We are ready to work with Washington to foster a more favorable policy environment for cooperation between the two countries' businesses, to bolster bilateral trade and investment in a stable manner, and to inject stronger impetus into the world economic recovery. The Commerce Minister met his U.S. counterpart Gina Raimondo in Beijing and raised China's concerns about such issues as U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, U.S. semiconductor policies, restrictions on two-way investment, and sanctions on Chinese enterprises. He also stressed that the generalization of the concept of national security is not conducive to normal economic and trade exchanges. The two sides agreed to open new communication channels. Guatemala's Supreme Electoral Tribunal has ratified Bernardo Arevalo's victory in the presidential election. The center-left candidate won a runoff earlier this month after prosecutors had threatened to, to bar his party from the election. A document said to be from the Citizens' Registry ordered a temporary suspension of the Samia party's legal registration. The head of the Electoral Tribunal said the registry is a lower authority and confirmed that Arevalo is the, is the winner. The head of the Sudanese army says he fled the capital during a large military operation that involved naval and air forces. General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan says there is no agreement reached between the Sudanese armed forces and the RSF after the paramilitary group said it's open to a long-term ceasefire with the army. I confirm that my exit from the general command took place without any help and I did not leave with a deal or by arranging any agreement. This was a military action carried out by the armed forces. And anyone who says that there is an agreement or that there is a party that helped or that there is a deal is delusional. Alberhan showed up outside the headquarters of the SAF General Command and the Defense Ministry on Thursday for the first time since the beginning of the ongoing conflict. He inspected the army's outposts in Omdurman. The U.S. National Hurricane Center says Tropical Storm Idalia is expected to become a major hurricane by the time it reaches the Gulf Coast in Florida this week. Local officials have declared states of emergency emergencies in dozens of counties and ordered evacuations in preparation for potential storms. Some residents in Tampa have lined up in their cars for sandbags. Regardless, I mean, they all are a little different. But regardless, in every situation, I always start preparing, putting away all my um, patio furniture, bringing in anything out there that's loose and can fly away, uh, getting the sandbags. I'm feeling fine right now. Obviously, we're on the bad side of it. Um, But worst case is flooding right now. Hopefully not too much wind damage. Idalia will be the first storm to hit Florida this hurricane season. The state has mobilized more than 1,000 National Guard members for rescue and recovery efforts. Hundreds of Greek firefighters are battling a huge blaze that has killed at least 20 people over the past 10 days. 
The fire raged out of control across more than 77,000 hectares of land in northeastern Greece. Scores of residents have have had to flee their homes this summer. Firefighters from Cyprus, Germany, Sweden, Bulgaria, and Slovakia have been assisting Greece in recent weeks. 20,000 international tourists evacuated from the island of Rhodes last last month when wildfire burned resorts and hotels. The Italian Red Cross says it is struggling to cope with thousands of migrants at a center on the island of Lampedusa. Hundreds of them arrived on the island over the weekend, stretching the center beyond its capacity. Inacio Shintu, who coordinates the center for the Italian Red Cross, says the arrivals have made its op- operations more complicated. He says they have been managing to maintain the basics of providing food and washrooms for those gathered. Clearly, this is an important situation, an emergency situation, because with 4,000 people in a structure for 800, it is evident that it becomes a critical situation. In the meantime, there are enough bathrooms for everyone. It is clear that we had to increase the number of toilets, adding emergency structures. The kitchen has been upgraded, and these are the most important things. Lampedusa, over 180 kilometers from the coast of Tunisia, has becoming a, sip, a sp- stepping stone for migrants to reach Europe from Africa. Data from the Italian Interior Ministry shows over 110,000 migrants have arrived in Italy by sea so far this year, more than double the number in the same period last year. Well, thank you very much for the update. That was Tianyu reporting. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China is making plans to boost consumer confidence and the economy. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world. 37 past the hour now. Turning to business, and、uh, Chinese markets closed higher on Tuesday. Timothy Pope has more. The market chart looked、uh, quite a bit healthier, actually. Instead of that high rise followed by uh, tapering uh, losses throughout the rest of the session,、uh, it was、uh, a story of、uh, pretty steady gains throughout the session.、Uh, those policy changes taken at the weekend to boost investor confidence continued to impact、uh, the sentiment. We saw the Shanghai Composite Index rising about 1.2 percent, and the Shenzhen Component Index、uh, shot up more than 2 percent.、Uh, the progress of、uh, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina. Raimondo's visit to China has also been a cause of some cautious optimism、uh, among investors, as she and senior Chinese officials discuss reviving business and、uh, particularly tourism links as well between the two countries.、Uh, the chip sector, of course, has been a major point of contention between China and the U.S. over the last year or so, and、uh, we saw Chinese semiconductor and AI stocks gaining some significant ground.、Uh, Will Semiconductor added 2.3 percent in Shanghai, while the huge chip foundry. Huahong rose more than 11 percent.、Uh, on the AI side, we saw Inspur up、uh, almost 5 percent.、Uh, there were gains too for healthcare and consumer stocks, but some profit taking among、uh, blue chip financials.、Uh, many of those uh, had uh, had been rising pretty strongly,、uh, as they were seen to be pretty direct beneficiaries of、uh, changes to things like、uh, margin trading and stamp duty. And that was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index gained around two percent. In Japan, the Nikkei was a little bit above flat.
Chinese financial authorities say the country is planning to further boost domestic demand, shore up confidence and prevent risk in the second half of this year. The National Development and Reform Commission said that more work will be done to continuously improve economic performance and to defuse risk. The country will take steps to help increase incomes, expand consumption and stabilize foreign trade and capital. The commission also said it will adjust policies to support the sound development of the real estate market. British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly will visit China on Wednesday. China's foreign ministry says the two sides will have in-depth exchanges on issues of concern during the visit. The triple marked the first visit of Britain's top diplomat to Beijing in five years. China's remained one of the UK's largest trading partners, with total trade between the two sides reaching over 130 billion US dollars. But aside from trade, UK companies have also found success in establishing and running businesses in the Chinese market. Uh, Omar Khan spoke with Vice Chair Mark Clayton of the British Chamber of Commerce, Guangdong, for his views on the opportunities in South China. Earlier this month, China boosted efforts to attract foreign investment, with the country's state council unveiling 24 specific measures to increase inflows. For the British Chamber of Commerce, Guangdong, which recently surveyed its members on doing business in China, the new guidelines could potentially boost investor confidence. There was a lot more optimism this year than in the past. Um, we surveyed people in the end of uh, 2022, but then we redid it in April 23 because of the opening. Right. And 76% uh, of British businesses felt optimistic. And where a lot of people are looking at is the, the, the Chinese consumption growth economy that uh, the government's trying to push towards and the scale of the market and the opportunities here. There's been a lot of opening in the e-commerce sector in China, especially with how you can uh, deliver the goods into free trade zones and then have your goods here in China free trade zone, but then sell them into China one by one. That's something which a lot of companies in the UK don't know about. And I think it needs to be explained more clearly. This is possible. You can sell your products into China through these free trade zones. Having first come to China in 2005 after qualifying as an accountant, Clayton took his expertise to Zhuhai, working in the sourcing industry and helping British firms navigate the Chinese market. Eventually, the firm he works for doubled down on their presence in the country, aiming to transform alongside the local market. The depth of the supply chains in China is very, very difficult to replicate. From my research into Vietnam, Thailand, India, um, amongst other countries, yes, there's some sourcing to be done there. But the actual manufacturing, adding high value there, I don't think that's going to be available for quite some time. As for other British firms, Clayton believes more clarity would go a long way in boosting confidence. One thing that does come out is this level playing field. But secondly, also the clarity in regulation. So there could be regulation, which is very good for Chinese companies and British companies. But companies want it to be clear, like crystal clear about what is this, and then how do I operate with it? James Cleverly is the first UK Foreign Secretary to visit China in five years. Though much of his trip is assumed to aim at rebalancing ties between the two sides, potential economic and trade cooperation would surely be welcomed by the business community. And that was Omar Khan talking with Mark Clayton, Vice Chair of the British Chamber of Commerce, Guangdong. 
Official data shows China's cross-border e-commerce trade volume in the first half of the year jumped 16% to 1.1 trillion yuan. That's over 150 billion U.S. dollars. Uh, the number of warehouses established for cross-border e-commerce companies in China has reached over 1,500, covering an area of over 19 million square meters. Xiao Lu with the Chinese Ministry of Commerce explains what kinds of efforts China's made recently to boost its e-commerce development. China has been promoting the World Trade Organization's negotiations on e-commerce and the addition of a special chapter on e-commerce to the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. China has also been developing the Silk Road e-commerce program, signing memorandums of understanding on e-commerce cooperation with 29 countries and regions. China's approved the establishment of over 160 pilot zones for cross-border e-commerce, covering all 31 provincial-level regions on the Chinese mainland. In Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, the Urumqi International Landport is a key project of the Belt and Road Initiative. And over the past few years, the integration of one-stop services has bolstered trade efficiency between China and countries along the BRI network. Now, Juju has more. As a key stop for the China-Euro freight trains, the Urumqi International Landport is a crucial nexus linking the economic area of Asia and Europe. Furthermore, it functions as the most proximal logistics center on the west passage of the China-Euro freight trains, offering connectivity to Central and Western Asia, as well as Europe. In the first six months of this year, about 700 China-Euro freight trains have been shipped through Xinjiang. In recent years, a so-called one-stop goods clearance services hall has been set up. It has helped reduce the goods clearance time into only one hour. Previously, in the absence of the one-stop goods clearing service hall, companies were required to navigate various departments for procedures, including customs, railway, and international road departments. However, with the current setup, they can efficiently handle all processes in a single location, ensuring swift completion. Besides speeding up on-site clearance, Online services have also made it easier for companies from different provinces to apply for goods clearance. For customers located outside Urumqi, the entire process can be carried out seamlessly online, eliminating the need for any manual intervention. This includes tasks like reserving train storage space and making settlement payments. Looking ahead, the Landport plans to establish additional centers with diverse functions to offer companies more accessible services for exporting their products. By 2025, we aim to develop a business and trade center where companies can showcase their products alongside standardized factories and an industrial park as part of our expansion efforts. Thanks to measures like these, there is a substantial surge in activity. Data from the land port shows more than 19,000 freight trucks shipped through the port last year, doubling that of 2021. Additionally, over 1,000 China-Euro freight trains operated, with a year-on-year -year increase of 16.5%. That was Juju reporting from Urumqi. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, a Chinese player earns a hard-fought victory in the first round at the U.S. Open. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.
47 past the hour now. Turning to sports, and here's Brandon Yates. Thank you, Shane. We begin with tennis, and China's Zhang Jijian is through to the second round of the U.S. Open. He defeated American J.J. Wolf for his first U.S. Open win in his second attempt. It was a five-set marathon for Zhang, where he won 7-5, 7-5, 6-7, 4-6, 6-3. He will next face fifth seed Casper Root for a place in the third round. Other big names that have progressed in the men's singles so far include Stefanos Tsitsipas and Dominic Thiem. Novak Djokovic reclaimed his world number one ranking over Carlos Alcaraz with his first round win over Frenchman Alexander Muller. On the women's side, China's Zhu Lin, Wang Xinyu and Wang Xiyu all progressed, as well as world number one Iga Swiatek. Greet Asia in Hangzhou. Embrace the excitement of the games. In today's Meet Asia in Hangzhou section, we re-review the fourth edition of the Asian Games in Jakarta, Indonesia. Chiju with more. Jakarta beat Pakistan's Karachi by two votes to win the right to host the 1962 Asian Games. It's the first time for Indonesia to hold a large-scale international multi-sport event. The country built one of the world's largest stadiums for the Games, the Galora Bongkano Stadium, with a capacity of nearly 110,000. The stadium was then renovated twice, with the number of seats reduced to 77,000. Organizers also built the first Asian Games Athletes' Village, which accommodated 1,460 athletes from 12 countries and regions. Due to political and religious reasons, the Indonesian government refused to issue visas to the delegations from Israel and the Chinese Taipei. Badminton made its Asian Games debut as one of 13 official sports. Japan topped the medal table with 161 medals, including 73 golds. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Siju. Many of the venues at the upcoming Hangzhou Asian Games are equipped with the latest cutting-edge technologies. Wu Bin visited the Fuyang Water Sports Center and spoke to the staff there to learn more about the immersive experience awaiting audience members. The Fuyang Water Sports Center is built on one side of the river. Three competitions at the 19th Asian Games, rowing, canoe sprint, and a canoe slalom, will be hosted at the center in September. The competition lanes could be as long as two kilometers, making it hard to monitor the situation solely with human eyes. A digital platform has been built to support real-time control of every corner of the venue, serving as the brain of the center. We have 14 channels of surveillance that are monitoring the competition lanes. Through intelligent algorithms, if there is any crossing or if someone falls into the water, it will fed backstage immediately and the security personnel will deal with it in time. For those who want to experience a bit of rowing during the Asian Games, two of the kayaks will be put at the auditorium for visitors to immerse themselves in the experience of professional athletes. By putting on the VR headset, you get to see the exact same view as professional athletes during the competition. And the speed and angle also changes as you roll. We spent more than two weeks capturing the images of the river over and over again with a specialized VR drone. After capturing it, the scene was reshaped by the mainstream Unreal Engine to ensure the same perspective as the athletes during the experience. Tickets for the three competitions have nearly sold out, as thousands of audience members look forward to witnessing as many as 30 gold medals up for grabs. That was Wu Bin in Hangzhou. 
Moving on to football transfer news, Roma has agreed to terms with Chelsea over a season-long loan for Belgium international striker Romelu Lukaku. The clubs have reportedly agreed to a straight loan deal, with a loan fee thought to be in the region of £8 million. Lukaku spent last season on loan at Inter Milan after he fell out of favour at Chelsea. He was keen on a return to Italy and was happy to go to Rome because of his desire to work with manager Jose Mourinho again. Joao Cancelo is reportedly close to completing a loan to Barcelona from Manchester City. Cancelo is poised to travel to Spain after City exchanged documents with Barcelona regarding a deal for the Portugal fullback. The deal contains an option to buy the player on a permanent basis. The fee is expected to be in the region of €25 million. Euros. The initial move will be Cancelo's second loan spell in seven months after he joined Bayern Munich at the end of the previous transfer window. China suffered another setback facing an 89-69 defeat against South Sudan at the FIBA Basketball World Cup. Li Kaya bounced back from his lackluster performance in the first match by scoring 22 points. South Sudan had five players scoring in double digits with Karlik Jones leading with 21 points. Coach Alexander Djordjevic believes the Chinese team lacked aggression. I think that we should have be more aggressive in the first half. We exactly knew, we know the game plan, but the guys were ready for it. We executed well. Uh, we also let, with a little bit lack of our aggressiveness on the ball, but uh, that's what it is. Uh, this is what it is. We just have to move, move up. Elsewhere, the United States secured a spot in the round of 16 at the FIBA World Cup with a dominant 109-81 victory over Greece in a Group C clash. And finally, Daniel Ricciardo has undergone surgery on his broken hand and will miss the Formula 1 Italian Grand Prix. Alpha Tori have confirmed that Liam Lawson will continue to drive for the team until Ricciardo returns to full fitness. Ricciardo crashed on Friday during second practice at the Dutch Grand Prix. He broke his left hand due to the sudden movement of the steering wheel when he hit the barrier. Thank you very much. That was Brandon Yates reporting. Coming up in culture and entertainment, China's new awards honoring the best in TV, film, animation, and documentaries. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men, Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 53 past the hour, turning to culture and entertainment, and Yang Guang joins us now. Thank you, Shane. China has launched a new awards recognizing the best in television, film, animation, and documentary. The inaugural Golden Panda Awards will take place on September 19th and 20th in Chengdu, with 90 works from 104 countries and regions nominated. Renowned Chinese director Zhang Yimou will be the president of the jury. The event will also include a welcome reception for guests and a forum. For many, ballet is considered one of the highest art forms, but it's not one necessarily accessible to everybody. A retired ballet dancer in Lima, Peru, though, has set out to change that. She made it her goal to bring ballet to girls from families who could not afford it and those who were considered unable to dance. Dan Collins reports. Ballet can be practiced in the most unlikely of places. All you need is a bar to grip and a teacher like Mary Carmen Silva. She's prepared to put her students through their paces whenever and wherever they may be. Life can be tough in San Genaro, a neighborhood on the southern end of Lima. 
But retired dance teacher Mary Carmen Silva decided that that shouldn't stop these girls from having dreams of a future in ballet. In Silva, a former professional ballet dancer, the students have found a teacher who believes in them. Before I treated ballet like a hobby, now with Miss Mari Carmen, it's part of my life. I dedicate a lot of time and effort to it, otherwise it wouldn't make sense. But they have to overcome obstacles in order to dance. This poor neighborhood lacks basic services like water, and getting anywhere else takes time. For 15-year-old Nicole Chavez, ballet is an escape. I feel great happiness when I dance. I feel that I can breathe well. I feel like I'm in another world and everything else disappears. Her younger sister Kate also dances and their mother, Elcida, is relieved it keeps them out of trouble. Here there are girls who are my daughter's age, who are involved in drugs and getting drunk at all-night parties. It makes me sad. They were friends with my daughters when they were little. Fortunately, my girls don't have time for such things. The ballet protects them. Together, Silva, Ruiz and other relatives raise money for classes, transportation and even competitions abroad by recycling paper and plastic. At the dance studio, Silva makes space also for students who are physically challenged. Lucia Viacava has cerebral palsy, but she doesn't let that get in the way of her passion for ballet. Her mother, Hilda Buller, says her daughter, now 15, has been in love with it ever since she was six. I feel that in this group they are much more integrated, much more connected. She feels part of the group. Once you join it, everybody starts to help. She says her daughter's motor and communication skills have improved thanks to the classes. Thanks to fundraising efforts, Silva has taken her dancers to perform in Panama, Brazil and the U.S. That was Dan Collins on the story of a ballet teacher in Peru. China's Ministry of Education has publicized a set of physical exercises based on oracle bone inscriptions. The idea behind this is to promote traditional Chinese culture and language. The exercises were initiated by Anyang Normal University in Henan province and designed by its School of Music. The exercises consist of 19 characters of the oracle bone inscriptions. The aim is to artfully combine music, dance, and physical exercise with ancient writing in order to revive, apply, and popularize the inscriptions. And finally, a new study by Chinese scholars has unveiled evidence of earliest systematic use of coal for fuel. The evidence from Xinjiang dates back 3,600 years, advancing the history of early coal usage by a millennium. The excavations have been taking place at the Jiren Togo coal site in Ili. Researchers explained that the Ili region might have been influenced by a global climate deterioration event around 4,200 years ago. The team speculated that the late-stage site then experienced deteriorating vegetation. The resulting diminution in wood resources and societal environmental conflicts ultimately drove local communities to transition their energy sources. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang reporting.
We're at 58 past the hour and Beijing's at 18 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, cloudy and, nine, or and 29. Uh, Chongqing's 23 this evening, then sunny and 32. Last is down to 13 overnight, then cloudy and 24. Hong Kong's 27 this evening, then sunny and 33. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 25 degrees overnight. It's overcast and 33 degrees Celsius on Wednesday. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, China says economic and trade ties are the cornerstones of China-U.S. relations. And Florida's bracing for the first hurricane expected to make landfall in the state this season. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. <laughs>